0: Second episode part of the thing. Uh, it's totally the same recording session, guys. We promise we're not infinitely more mentally deranged and stressed than the last time, and increasingly becoming aware of all of our terrible life decisions and uh, poor time management skills. Uh, number seventeen, Andrew Johnson. Yeah, getting
1: get on. Get Everybody's favorite, or perhaps the least favorite. Johnson is the worst president. He he basically just is.
0: No debate. There's
1: no real competition. Yeah. (laughs) The amount of damage he did to the country is unfathomable. We did an entire podcast about how evil he was. Go listen to our episode about the Reconstruction. But since we already went into Johnson's failures as a president we figure we could also throw in a little character assassination on the side. It's ironic that Grant is known as the alcoholic president in our modern mythos because Johnson is the one who was so intoxicated, he barely got sworn in. Johnson was Lincoln's vice president for his second term. Lincoln couldn't get Benjamin Butler to do the job and wanted to show unity. Johnson was literally the only Southern congressman who didn't join the Confederacy and thus he won by default. Now, for some mixture of personal failings, Johnson got completely hammered the night before his inauguration and was so hungover the next morning, he asked the sitting vice president, the guy he was replacing, for whiskey.
0: Ah, the old, the only way out is through solution. So, again, The much more qualified guy who he's replacing uh, hands him the whiskey. Johnson gets it. And proceeds to deliver a speech to the Senate that was barely coherent. He was later unable to swear in the Senators, which is supposed to be the Vice President's job, you know, master of the Senate and all that. Johnson being completely unhinged and, like, smelling drunk, an acting drunk is basically universally documented and testified by everyone who was there along with his improper conduct you know some scholars have tried to spin this as like the dc elite being against him from the beginning as a foreshadowing to johnson's attempted impeachment but It was just obvious to everyone that he wasn't the right man for the job, and you know, maybe they should have followed that gut instinct a little closer. (laughs) As a final note before we uh, sweep this guy into the trash can of history lincoln's second inaugural speech is widely regarded as one of the best speeches in american history and arguably ever made like it is engraved on i think off my gut i'm gonna say the right side of his monument as a guy who was an english major in a past life and stopped being an english major so he can drop out of college and actually become a good writer by like writing things it's a incredibly beautiful and powerful speech. And it's hilarious to picture him giving that banger right after watching his new vice president almost soil himself.
1: Luckily, nothing ever happened to Lincoln that, you know, would... Put Johnson in the White House. All right, now, now <laughs>
0: we're just... Jay, what is even the point of that? What, what, what even the point of... That's that's fruit so low that it's got dirt from the ground it, on it. <laughs> Have some self-respect, man.
1: <laughs> anyway, it's from somebody who both of us quite dislike, as well as pretty much everybody else who, who knows anything about American history. We go on to somebody who actually am a little bit fond of, and that would be Ulysses S. Grant, number 18. Now, Grant's time at the White House has undergone perhaps the most dramatic swings in its historical reputation of any presidency. Grant took office as a war hero. If you don't know much about the American Civil War, he was a Union general in charge during the latter portion of that conflict. And after taking office, he would see his popularity decrease through a series of seemingly endless corruption scandals. The role of the federal government expanded greatly during and in the aftermath of the Civil War, meaning that huge amounts of cash were now flowing through a relatively disorganized, slapped-together bureaucracy. Naturally, this created the perfect environment for vast amounts of corruption. Now, while any presidency would have likely suffered from corruption scandals during this era, Grant's administration was especially prone to scandal due to Grant being, well, kind of a nice guy. Having spent a good portion of his life near bankruptcy and relying on the generosity of others, Grant was the kind of guy to just basically give jobs and favors to old friends, family, veterans, you know, anybody who had a good sob story. Now, this isn't a bad trait in a person, but as a president, it meant that Grant was very easy to take advantage of.
0: If you're not aware, Grant's story is essentially the American dream. It's really stupid that there aren't, like, 15 biopics about this guy and that, like, I don't know, insert teen heartthrob actor that wants to get serious of the day is not starring in the next Hollywood piece on him because he goes from being like near destitute and failing at tons of businesses, having to be a tanner, which is a terrible acrid job at the time and struggling with, with alcoholism and religion and women and just kind of being a fuck up his entire life until he sort of winds up just being the savior of an entire country and helps to end the Civil War and pilot the Union Army. And it's especially because the way he does it is a very American, I think, way where most scholars will say that Grant was not a brilliant tactician or a genius of military theory and complexity, but the guy had what many people will say is just the ineffable uh, trait of grit. Uh, Sherman, the other great general of the war, when asked, Is Grant a better general than you? he would say, Oh, I'm I, better than him in so many ways i know more i can do more but where he has me beat is i when the bullets are flying when people are dying when the shit is hit the fan i will doubt myself before he does i will issue contradictory orders before he does i will panic before he does and for some reason he just has this self-assured confidence to zone in and not fuck up. Which, if you're talking about actual battlefield commander necessary tactics and leadership, the ability to not panic and commit to your decisions is one of the most important factors in a effective commander. And it's one of the things that Is hardest to teach. Yeah. It's kind of just something that some people have and some people don't. And Grant had it. But like so many military leaders. From him to fucking Mao Zedong. Not exactly the guy you want leading the country. So. But he's universally loved. And we've already talked about famous Generals being in the president's chair, so now he's put in the president's chair as his reward for winning. And you know, he doesn't know much about government, so he just lets the people around him run things and trusts people when they pitch him on stuff. And the most infamous scandal to rock the Grant administration was the so called whiskey. Ring. I know this is one of those vocab words you had to know if you did a push. This ring was a massive conspiracy in which Treasury Department agents aided Midwestern whiskey distilleries to in avoiding taxes in exchange for bribes. So it's like you'll avoid taxes, but then you'll sort of like pay half that money that you avoided. Uh, in a bribe this is a classic kickback and you can find this sort of corruption at every single port on the planet this is the most basic government corruption scandal this shit was done in the roman empire
1: it's funny you mentioned ports because i think was like in new york harbor they were kind of also doing a version of this during the Grant administration. Uh, Grant scandals have their own Wikipedia page. There are a lot of them.
0: (laughs) I mean, this was just the way things were done. For most of history of, like, especially tax collecting, the job of tax collector was inherently corrupt. There There were no non corrupt tax collectors. Like you took your cut for the government and you took your cut for yourself. A lot of times, in a lot of governments, that was just how the tax collector was paid. It's like, yeah, you have to give the you have a quota of like X amount of money you have to give to the government and then the rest is that you extract is just yours. Anyway, Treasury Department, whiskey distilleries, yada yada. The head of the ring is this guy named John McDonald. A former army general who'd been appointed as revenue corrector by Grant. You may notice that you know, one of those jobs doesn't make, exactly make you qualified for the other. Grant's own personal secretary, Orville E. Babcock, was also likely involved in the ring. Orville E. Babcock, that's a, that's a name. The ring was eventually discovered by the treasury secretary and the press, leading to highly publicized investigations. Grant initially supported the investigation, but then interfered when Babcock, his personal friend and aide during the war, was implicated. Grant's interference likely spared Babcock prison time, and McDonald was later pardoned by the president as well. There's no evidence that Grant was ever involved in the ring or profited off of it, he just didn't want to see his friends go to jail. Babcock would return Grant's favor by getting involved in even more corruption scandals. Grant did achieve things in office other than corruption. He held more progressive views on race than his contemporaries. He attempted to enforce the policies of Reconstruction, and his newly established Department of Justice successfully broke up the first iteration of the Ku Klux Klan. He also eventually implemented a series of reforms to reduce graft, though corruption would remain endemic throughout the Golden Age. And this is a thing we're actually going to touch on a few presidents down the line to explain kind of more of how this corruption and graft worked and why it was arguably the heart of America at the time.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Now, upon leaving office, his stock once again improved, enough to attempt the Republicans into briefly considering running him for a third term. Grant would die a very popular figure, only to see his reputation dragged through the mud by lost cause historians who cast him as a brutish drunkard, both on the battlefield and in the Oval Office. Now, only in recent decades have historians began to really reevaluate his, his tenure, Grant today is seen as a brilliant general and a pretty decent, if quite flawed, president. And really, perhaps the worst I think that can really be said about his time in office is not that his administration was corrupt because they all were, but that he failed to use the political capital he gained through his status as a war hero to really implement his more progressive ideals. You know, this is a guy who routinely stated his desire for African-Americans to be treated as equal citizens, and also generally desired better relations with the Native Americans, but he basically just let the political tides of the era sway his actions instead of taking more initiative on these issues. And I think that also kind of just shows that, like, you know, you can have this person who is—I—I I, I think if Grant took more initiative, did more in office with the popularity he had. He, there, there, He could have gone down as like one of the best presidents in U.S. history. And for me, like the, the bad thing about Grant is that he just kind of didn't do as much as he maybe could have.
0: And I think a lot of the reason for that is he didn't know how or the political yeah. capacity <laughs> just wasn't there in for sure. the Congress, in his mind. You know, again, he was not a political mind or a political figure. He was a general, but... Well, I mean, one of the most important things about Grant is that, at the time, your commander-in-chief is president, and there are three places you can point the army. You can point it at the former and arguably currently rebellious South, you can point it at the American Indians in the West, or you can point it at labor. And Grant tried his best to point it in the correct direction. Because yeah. when the clan rose and all the Confederates and their kids started putting on robes and calling themselves the grand dragons and goblins because it was all nerd shit. He was like Yeah, we're not doing round two of this And just went down there and Forrest said, Oh no, it was all it was all a misunderstanding <laughs> But Jay, can you talk for just a second about how Grant's level of corruption was totally normal for presidents up through like the 1920s?
1: Yeah, so this is, you know, like I said, this is a period of immense growth in both just the general national wealth in the economy and also the amount of money that's going through the federal government. But the bureaucracy like just wasn't there to handle this in a somewhat like organized manner like it was pretty much common that like whenever a president took office they just put all their friends and family and whatever in all the positions like that was just the norm that's what you did um the idea of like a permanent civil service it was around there were civil servants but like it just wasn't that it wasn't as established
0: And there were also no watchdogs. There were no, like, quote, independent groups within the government that were supposed to be checking to make sure people weren't doing anything untoward.
1: Yeah, like, if you were vaguely connected to a senator or a congressman or the president, like... You just went to DC, and like, hey, can I get a job? And like, there's a good chance you would get one doing anything. It didn't matter if you had a background in it or not. Like, you could be, you know, a random like a, like a colonel or something, and like now you're in the the Treasury Department. Like, it's that's just how things worked. It was not nearly as formalized as it is today, and this meant that massive amounts of corruption, you know, occurred and. You could say America today is very corrupt, and we'll get onto this later, but it's a different kind of corruption. And there are probably people from other countries in the world, you know, if there are people from other countries like India, for example, listening to this, are probably familiar because that's with this. Because that's exactly. kind of how, you know, a lot of countries work, you know, to this day, where it's just personal patronage networks um, that are basically just how government works. It's just a guy, you know, the boss and his family and friends, like all the way down.
0: Yeah, I would say more governments right now function on patronage networks than don't. I mean, if yeah. you study early agrarian history, like Bronze Age shit, you know, they'll tell you that the broad strokes is that the way this period works is you're the chief and you win some battles and you distribute loot from said battles to your important uh, warriors to keep them loyal and that just sort of scales up until you're a king and you're distributing stuff to your barons who distribute it to their knights and yada yada if we move that on to a democracy there are people who get you votes and get you in office and then you in turn you know it's not a battle it's an election but now you distribute the loot to the people who supported you and that's how a patronage network works.
1: Yeah, and like you know, we talk about the whiskey ring, and and you know, this specific conspiracy was you know to the people in the Grant administration. But whiskey distillers were pulling this stuff with Treasury agents, at least back in, in back during Lincoln's time. This was nothing new. And, well, like you said, like this shit happens in ports and all across you know American history, across the world. It's just kind of like you know, the idea that like. You know, if you want anything done in government, you just have to have a little money with you to grease grease the cogs. That's just how it worked. And that's how it works in a lot of places.
0: More places than not. 19. Rutherford B. Hayes. So, we now approach the black hole, Rutherford B. Hayes. One of the reasons I think that Grant is so well known for corruption is because Hayes is a big signal point in the presidential pantheon. Most of y'all probably only have a vague inkling of his existence. If you know one thing about him, it's that his election ended Reconstruction, then most American history classes go, uh, yada, 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 Teddy Roosevelt, in terms of presidents. And because, like, the next seven dudes just sort of get skipped over by most of history, you know, people talk about Grant in class because it's easy because you already talked about Grant in, during the Civil War. So you just sort of, you can throw him in there. And then you use him to teach the corruption shit because you don't want to use the other guys who you equally could use to teach the corruption shit because you just kind of want to skip to him. Because during this period, you're going to talk about, like, the Golden Age and the Progressive Era, and you're going to talk about things other than the institution of the presidency, right?
1: Yeah, you're probably talking a lot about, like, Industrial Revolution and stuff like that. Like, that's what you're talking about.
0: Yeah, that's the meta of American history. Hayes through McKinley, the snooze-fest era. These are the guys you are actively told not to pay attention to, that did nothing Interesting. All these presidents were hard to write about, to be honest. You know, some of these fucks were genuinely boring. And Hayes was one of the hardest to write. Not because there was nothing to talk about, but because I couldn't pick. You see, Rutherford B. Hayes, as you look into him, turns out to be one of the greatest monsters to earn the mantle of president. Like, almost every decision this guy made actively made things worse. And the more I looked at his record, the more I realized that the real fuck-up was that we don't know enough about how this godless <laughs> sack of unfiltered douche water just shat all over the institution.
1: Now let's just go through a lightning round of Hayes' four years in office, shall we? The Grand Bargain of his election and his Reconstruction, which abandoned millions of black Americans and allowed the South to become an apartheid hell state.
0: Now, the country was deep in recession for most of Hayes' presidency. This caused a lot of things, including the Great Railway Strike of 1877. After the company cut wages below what the workers needed to survive, rail workers revolted in America's first great labor action. There essentially weren't large-scale strikes in America before this. As governors deployed troops to gun down strikers, Hayes was indecisive, and basically did nothing as the country devolved into a months-long civil war. Eventually, Hayes sent in federal troops, who documented didn't kill anyone, but definitely ended any chance of labor defending itself the next 80 years would see a constant war between Americans and their rich masters and it was Hayes who first decided what side the government would take. Side note, if you're not aware, hundreds of people died from like the 1870s to the 1930s in the American labor labor wars, both in pitched battles like the Battle of Blair Mountain where bombs were dropped from planes and like the first time in human history and Uh, ...assassinations, like the anarchists out west. And Hayes really set the tone on what the feds were going to do... ...when people were like, we would like to not be worked to death, please.
1: Yeah. Going back to that recession, the long story short is that was caused by a shortage in the money supply... ...after the Civil War. This is because American currency was tied to gold... Kind of a terrible idea. In 1878, Congress passed the Bland Allison Act to get some silver coinage into circulation and ease the pain. Hayes naturally vetoed this bill, and Congress had to override him.
0: He ordered federal troops to actively pursue so-called bandits in Texas into Mexico, which almost caused a full-blown conflict with the country, just violating their federal sovereignty on a whim.
1: And to top that all off, he spent most of his time in office fighting his own party on civil service reform. This is generally spun as an anti-corruption matter and you can't see it that way. We'll get more into this when we do Arthur, but basically Hayes pissed so many people off doing this that his own people wouldn't nominate him for re-election.
0: Bad dude. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. He's bad. It's a bad. <laughs> yeah. Dude.
1: You know, like Hayes is is one of those. Like definitely for me. Like all I knew about Hayes was, and you know, end of Reconstruction, and it doesn't surprise me that he is a terrible person, a terrible president. But like. I didn't really know much about that before, Before you know, reading about this for this episode.
0: I mean, again, this is a period in American history where the Republican Party, for reasons we'll get into soon, just is like, really has no platform and is just jamming, run, run general, run general, run a Civil War general and hope that they vote for him because they remember who shot at him. And... Hayes was one of them, as is the next guy I'm about to talk about, and these guys never had any skill set that should have put them anywhere close to federal office. Number 20, James A. Garfield. So, yeah, Garfield is where these guys actually start getting boring. Uh, Like I said, the man was the third Civil War general in a row. And all that was really expected of him was for him to sit there and let the party gather strength. Which he could not do, because he almost immediately died.
1: Now, mainstream history will tell you that Garfield was assassinated. And this is not entirely true. Someone tried to assassinate him, yes. Charles Guiteau walked up to him and shot him twice, but that didn't kill Garfield. Garfield took office on March 4th of 1881. He was shot on July 2nd of that year, but he didn't die until September 18th. This means that he spent more than a third of his presidency dying. More than a third! that Garfield was shot from behind, with one bullet glancing off his arm and another one becoming lodged in his shattered ribs. A lot of modern doctors agree he might not have died, if not for how incompetently he was cared for. You know, if this guy got shot today in the same situation and got to hospital, he would probably have over an 80% chance of living. But 1881 was a different time.
0: That yeah, like, sad. modern medicine... We're, we are really good at helping a dude who got shot in the chest. Like my understanding is you don't get hit in the heart or the lungs, and you can reach an ER in any degree of urgency. You got like a solid 85% chance if you're yeah. already healthy. Like It is, it is not hard uh, to plug a bullet wound. And of course, what you guys are thinking are, well, yeah, but that's because we have all of this new technology and understanding, and modern doctors are infinitely better trained and more well-equipped with all of the scanners and the x-rays and devices and shit than Garfield could have received. But even by the standards of the time, the president receives subpar care. While Joseph Lister had published his studies on sterilization several years before this, none of Garfield's doctors believed him. If you're not aware, there was this guy named Joseph Lister who... He didn't discover bacteria exactly, but he essentially just proved that if you make sure that there's no bacteria on something by, like, heating it up or covering it with alcohol, then if you use it, it won't cause an infection. And he published lots of studies and evidence and proof that could be easily replicated to show that this was how things worked. But... people just weren't paying attention. They also didn't realize that it would be fine for them to leave the bullet in Garfield. My understanding is when... uh. Teddy Roosevelt gets shot like 30 years after this one of the reasons he survives is because they're like no leave it there because what happens is in order to get the bullet out they start digging into his guts for days and days with unsanitized tools obviously widening all of the holes in him and making things worse at one point Alexander Graham Bell, the guy who invented the goddamn telephone, brought in a homemade metal detector to try and find the bullet. This didn't work because of the metal bed frame, but, yeah. Good try. Autopsies would discover that digging around in all the wrong places for the bullet might have ruptured and infected his gallbladder, which led to his death. Garfield wasted away for months while his main doctor and good friend insisted on feeding him with enemas even after he lost over 40 pounds. Like, they just essentially starved him and his body just did not have the strength to fight a lot of what was going on. In the end, he was delirious, hopped up on morphine, running a constant fever like 104, starved, and honestly, probably glad to be put out of his misery.
1: Number 21, Chester A. Arthur. So Arthur is kind of notable for being perhaps the most successful vice president to become president so far in our list. Now, he was still an awkward and controversial figure that, you know, got yelled at a lot. And he didn't even seek a nomination for another term because he knew he wouldn't get it. But he did manage to step over the bar set by his predecessors.
0: Congratulations.
1: (laughs) The funny thing about Arthur is he might be the most ironic president.
0: So now we're going to talk about parties and corruption like we mentioned earlier. Earlier, we talked about Martin Van Buren inventing the Democrat Party. And what we meant by that is that he and his contemporaries created the first modern political machine. A political machine is a system, an organization, a machine that gets votes from the newly enfranchised poor men of America. How do you get people to vote for you? Well, you give them a reason to. You give them things. This, let's give, like... An, early example. This is the kind of thing that actually happened. In the 1820s, if the government wanted to tell people about new laws that they had just passed, they had to pay local newspapers in every town to publish those laws. So Van Buren might get the Democrats to pick a paper owned by his friend, and the newspaper owner would get a generous government contract line his pockets, and then tell all his workers to vote Democrat so he could keep his wages high. This happened all across the country by federal and state governments. Money went from large governments to local governments to local businesses to workers. All promising votes. It was like trickle-down economics, but real. Then you had appointments. Like we already went into, basically all bureaucrats at this point in history were appointed because they were loyal to the party and needed to be rewarded. Remember when Franklin Pierce spent the first two months of his presidency personally installing like 800 guys? That was the game. That was how you stayed in power. You can call it corruption, but that makes it sound like a bug in the system rather than the fact that for the first hundred years... This was the main function of the entire U.S. government.
1: Yeah. But if we do call this corruption, then it's certainly true that no one was more corrupt than Chester A. Arthur. He had worked his way up the Republican Party patronage machine to become the head of the New York City Customs House. This is the aforementioned Customs Scandal. You know, this is the guy who hires hundreds of guys to collect taxes on every ship coming into the largest port in the country. All of these guys could use their job to enrich themselves, and all of them owed their job to Arthur. Within a year, Chester was making more money than President Grant. He controlled nearly a thousand jobs and could be bribed by any business interest in the city.
0: If you get taught this in American high school, you might be taught about Tammany Hall in New York. That was a Democrat institution of corruption and patronage and Chester sort of taking himself out uh, as the Republican side is what kind of allows Tammany Hall to grow in dominance and strength like 10 years later.
1: Yeah. Now the Republican party was founded to oppose slavery and advocate for Western expansion. With the Civil War fought and the West expanding, it began to face a bit of an identity crisis. Patronage networks like Arthur's were looking less like a thing the party did so it could pass legislation and more like the main purpose of the organization altogether.
0: Yeah, this is one thing that fascinates me is that the Republican Party just sort of gets taken over by business interests because momentarily there aren't like over coherent interests that can reach the ears of the legislators, especially after radical reconstruction ends and any idea of of black equality in the party gets thrown out. This is, you know, coupled with the fact that they put America back on the gold standard and that causes a massive economic recession. And this poor economy and the party being more and more controlled by business interests, you know, during the Civil War, the government has to get a lot of guns, get a lot of uniforms, and that makes a lot of people really, really rich, and a lot of them are very, very connected to the people winning the Civil War, a.k.a. the Republicans. This is why some of the most powerful people within the Republican Party are rich businessmen. Yeah. All this sort of means that there's few issues to motivate voters. They can't give them anything economic because that would be going against the fat cats. And the only thing to get them to vote is to hope that they will vote against the guy who shot them 20 years ago. Again, Civil War General, Civil War General, Civil War General, Civil War General. And during the 1870s, railroad construction unleashed a new era of corruption. We definitely will do a podcast episode on it. There are some hilarious uh, railroad, literal bridges to nowhere actually more nowhere than the building bridges to nowhere because nothing was even built. You know, you've got a railroad out in Utah, (laughs) Nebraska. You could just say you're building it and just pocket all the money and run, which literally happened a few times. Yeah. But this goes on and on and on, and eventually, after a solid 15 years of this, the American people are just filled with outrage the Republican Party is becoming more and more unstable, and more and more people are getting outraged at the government in- enriching itself in the fat cats while they're starving under economic depression. And essentially, the only button, the only thing that the federal government can do, well, besides Indian removal, but that's kind of bipartisan, the only thing they can do is attack the corruption. So in 1882, faced with nothing else to offer voters, the Republican Party decided to pass the Pendleton Civil Service Reform Act, which required like 10% of federal employees to be appointed on merit. And it was Arthur who signed it into law. Now in reality, Arthur was just the guy left holding the bag. He's kind of often lauded for this, because he didn't, like, ask for this to be a law, but that was just realpolitik, he sort of knew this needed to happen, and it was in the air, you know, reform was the will of the moment, he couldn't stop it, so he played along, but you have to wonder how the most corrupt man in America felt when he saw that bill on his desk.
1: Probably happy he'd already made all his money. <laughs> he, he got in. <laughs> he got <it> in
0: first. <laughs> yeah, this was one of the funnest guys to write about and one of the funnest things to read about. And I'm glad I did. Because th- this whole... The, all the patronage shit and corruption, is this, this, like, totally gets thrown out. And I could go on a whole nother rant about how, you know, the ruling cl- the ruling politicians of America kind of go from, like, corruption with, like, working class people to just... Corruption from uh, wealthy business interests And how this is sort of the, the shifting point But I kind of love how There was nothing else to do So <laughs> this is what they did Yeah So let's talk about the first uh, Democrat to get in After the civil war
1: Indeed That will be president number 22 And 24 God Greg damn it went? <laughs> So as you can probably tell by Azalea's anger, uh, Grover Cleveland is another fun fact president. This is the guy who got two non-consecutive terms and thus is counted as president 22 and 24. But Cleveland has another fun fact, the only president to be married in the White House. Now Cleveland was a bachelor until 1886, which is when he was 49. This is when he married Francis Fulton Who is 21?
0: Bit of a yiker's there, (laughs) chief.
1: Now, Frances would go on to be a bit of a media darling and was a wildly popular first lady.
0: She was like a celebrity at the time. She was one of the most well-known and beloved persons in the country, even for decades after she was first lady. She was really good at talking to the press. She set fashion trends. She's definitely in the top ten, if not in the top five, of, like, most influential first ladies.
1: She and Grover would have five children, one of them being born in the White House. But I bet you're wondering how these two met. You see, Grover and Frances met long before their wedding, though Frances would not remember because she was an infant at the time.
0: See, Frances's father was a lawyer and good friend of Grover, who was also a attorney out of New York City. Wikipedia says that Grover doted on the young girl and bought her a baby carriage, but I couldn't really find a source backing that up. In fact, on the brief digging I did on this, most sources, like, from the official... Uh, government page on First Ladies, to Wikipedia, to just most mainstream historians are very uncritical, (laughs) to say the least, about this relationship in general. Anyway, when Frances was nine, her father died suddenly in a horse and buggy accident, and without a formal will, Grover was appointed the administrator of the estate, This made him Francis' unofficial guardian. Now, Grover didn't directly raise Francis, merely supervising from afar, but he was, like, kind of legally responsible. And he was a presence in her life as he became mayor of Buffalo and then governor of New York. The two started exchanging letters when she was a teenager, and after what seems to have been a very drawn-out disagreement, Francis convinced her mother to let her marry her uncle (laughs) Cleve. A quick look at the evidence seems to show that Francis was fully on board and in love for all of this. And that's great. If she had a good time, I'm glad she had a good time. But I think we can all safely call her first husband Groomer Cleveland from now on.
1: Yeah. And you know, even besides this, Cleveland was also accused of rape. Like, there's a pretty good chance that I did was not know rapist. about that. <laughs> yeah. So if you remember a little bit from A-Push about this guy, you might remember it, some of the political slogans from this era. And the Republican slogan against Cleveland was, Ma, Ma, Where's My Pa? And after Cleveland won the election, the Democrats would retort by saying, "Gone to the White House, ha ha ha." But the "ma ma" wears my paw is because uh, a woman, Maria Crofts Halpin, accused Cleveland of raping her and make, you know, impregnating her.
0: Oh, I knew about the out of wedlock thing. I didn't know about the rape accusation. Yeah,
1: <laughs> and, and then you know, refusing to support the uh, the um, the child. Yeah, uh, Because um, there's
0: no way. If a yeah. guy's not married until he's 49, <laughs> and then he's married, and then he has five biological children, he has partners before this. There, There's, and, and probably long term, and I imagine there's various, you know, because cause it's, it's not like this is medieval England or anything, but. No. It's pretty weird and scandalous for a man of his position, you know, mayor, mayor of uh, Buffalo, New York City, governor, going into president, to to be unmarried. That's weird, and yeah, even like... then beyond that, to be surrounded by uh, various trysts, and I kind of you know wonder the ages of the people he was having said Trey Swift, considering his wife, but. Yeah, definitely paints the picture of a sex pest of a guy.
1: Yeah. I mean, he tried getting this woman confined to a insane asylum. She was thankfully released because he determined that she was not insane. Eventually, he did end up, you know, paying her and paying for the child. And, like, that kind of, like, quieted things up. And, like, we don't really know if if he raped her, but, like, I'm inclined to believe it. <laughs>
0: Moving on to a president so boring and unremarkable that I made Jay r- write his entry. Side note, I wrote m- most of the uh, like first third of this and a lot going forward, but as we continue, more and more entries will be Jay entries, and it'll be fun to see if you can uh, spot <laughs> which one's a, a Jay write-up and which one's an Azalea write-up.
1: Yes. Now this is number 23 Benjamin Harrison. Now it's safe to say that Benjamin Harrison is one of the most forgotten presidents, even relative to his Gilded age contemporaries. This is perhaps a bit of an oversight as Harrison did do some interesting things during his single term in office. You know, you made me do Harrison? I actually am kind of go out about that because I, I kind of left this being like, actually Benjamin Harrison comes off as better than a lot of the other guys in this era. Hmm. Now, Benjamin Harrison is a Republican. He was the grandson of one William Henry Harrison, who you might remember from earlier in our episode. And he was elected to the presidency in 1888, defeating the incumbent Grover Cleveland in the process. Now, one of the big issues during this election were tariffs. Cleveland and the Democrats supported the lower tariffs. Uh, they would cite the high cost of goods that tariffs created while Harrison and the Republicans favored higher tariffs, citing the economic benefit to businesses. Pensions happened to be another major issue, with Harrison favoring a very expansive pension program for Civil War veterans, and Cleveland opposing this program as a matter of cost. Now Harrison ended up losing the popular vote, but winning the Electoral College, something that Republicans seemed to enjoy doing. Once in office, he did go about keeping tariffs high. This created a large treasury surplus and this meant that Congress, which was also controlled by the Republicans, had quite a bit of money to spend. You know, back then, I think like half the government's revenue came from the tariff. Now, Harrison used this money to pass an extensive pension program covering Civil War veterans, their spouses and their children. His government also oversaw the expansion of the US Navy, which had largely shrunk in size over the preceding decades. You know, it's really Harrison who will kind of like kick the Navy on the path that'll you know lead to where it is today, where it's, you know, the largest Navy in the world. And it was during Harrison's time in office that federal expenditure exceeded $1 billion for the first ever time, gaining Congress the nickname of the Billion Dollar Congress.
0: Harrison also attempted to prosecute Southern states for infringing on the rights of black voters and passed a bill providing for federal oversight over congressional elections in the South to prevent voter suppression. In both areas, he was defeated, however, and the former by white jurors and the latter by a Senate filibuster. This was basically the only reason the filibuster was used for... The first, like, 200 years of this nation existing. He was one of the few Republicans who still had some idea of re- Reconstruction being a thing that was worth doing. But many of his own party were moving away from such ideals. I'm sure after all of this glowing praise in a podcast called No One Is Competent, you're wondering uh, what the fuck this guy did wrong. But, again, one term in office by the end of... Of Harrison's time in office the economy began to enter a downturn and the treasury surplus evaporated the same policies Harrison had campaigned on in 1888 came back to bite him and in 1892 the democrats successfully blamed republican tariffs for the high cost of goods and accused Harrison of wasting the surplus with his spending programs Harrison was duly defeated by none other than Grover Cleveland, making him the only president in U.S. history to have the same predecessor and successor. This is, uh, this is... It's... It's so weird, Jay, to look at politics in an era where the money was real. Yeah. (laughs) Like... When I was a kid, my dad told me that the way that politics works. This is one of the only things my dad tried to not even te- like influence my politics, but teach me about politics. He was like, "Well, the way that politics works is when the economy goes uh, down, they throw out all of the old hucksters and get all the new hucksters in. People vote with their wallet." That's my dad always told me when I was a child. He stopped telling me that, of course, because. Basically, in, in my living memory, that is completely, more or less, untrue. And, <laughs> yeah. Politics and economics have become kind of completely divorced. Which some would argue is is good. I, I don't, that's a that's whole thing. But, like, yeah, this is when that was a thing. It doesn't really matter what you did, as long as what you did completely relied on having a massive amount of money with which to do it which is not particularly creative uh, statecraft Uh, fun fact Harrison's vice president was Levi P Morton which is hilarious partially because his name was Levi P Morton but also because he was offered the VP slot for Garfield and had declined See, Morton had thought Garfield would lose the election, but then he watched Garfield win, die, and runner-up pick Jester Arthur get the president in his place. So I guess he wasn't taking any chances of that happening again.
1: Yeah, might have also been hoping that that Benjamin Harrison would would pull a William Henry Harrison and uh, and die in office, but it didn't happen. Now. As we mentioned earlier, uh, Harrison is replaced by Cleveland. We already talked about Cleveland, though, so we will be skipping Cleveland's second term and going on to number twenty-five, William McKinley.
0: I don't like this guy. This, this dude no, that's is, is just like <laughs> no, like, even more than the baseline. Like this guy is just a bitch. Like he's <laughs> he's he's such a pointy, twenty little fucking. I mean, one. His his campaign basically invents like rich people buying uh, campaigns and 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 votes. It's like the most expensive campaign bef- before this. Second, he just fucking sits on his ass and like simultaneously wants to be just a puppet of capital and the forces of the party around him but also like complains about it like he, he's he gets bullied essentially into doing the spanish-american war and shit i don't know i guess maybe that's what we're about to talk about jay t- take it i i fucking hate this guy yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah you know mckinley is one of these presidents who has a bit of enigma due, due to his rather private nature if this is still means that like people will debate about McKinley to this day, but generally it seems as if McKinley let other interests, you know, business, his Republican colleagues and the general public lead him along and guide his decision-making process. McKinley was a Republican, which meant that his election saw a return to the higher tariffs supported by most big businesses. In general, McKinley was more or less, you know, fine with letting corporate America run itself as they saw fit he would rarely ever enforce antitrust measures. In terms of his foreign policy, McKinley entered office stating in his inaugural address that, quote, we want no wars of conquest. We must avoid the temptation of territorial aggression. Naturally, by the end of his presidency, the U.S. had annexed multiple territories across the world.
0: <laughs> yeah, th- this is the... Would not or could not assert control guy. McKinley (laughs) brought about the annexation of Hawaii, which had been opposed by Cleveland, to completion. This was done largely out of both strategic and economic reasons. American businesses wanted to ensure that they'd keep a free hand that they'd had in Hawaii since overthrowing its monarchy. And McKinley wanted to prevent Japan or any other nation from taking it. However, as violence continued between Spain and Cuban rebels, McKinley resisted calls for American intervention in that conflict. In this, McKinley again reflected the views of large businesses. The Spanish had been more than willing to work with American companies, and war brought the potential for uncertainty that could rock an economy still recovering from the panic of 1893. Even after the dramatic explosion of the USS Maine in Havana Harbor, McKinley sought to avoid war with Spain as pressure amongst the public in the press and even from his own administration, most notably from Assistant Secretary of the Navy, Theodore Roosevelt, ramped up. McKinley decided to kick the issue to Congress and let them take responsibility for the whole thing. Congress declared war. The U.S. won. And America gained de facto control over Cuba and direct control over Puerto Rico, Guam, and the Philippines as a result. If you, like, read his, like, sending it to Congress, he, he's, like, he has all these writings where he's like, oh, it's not a good idea, I don't think it's a good idea. And later he's like, well, if they want it, well, I guess I could. Yeah, he's he's so (laughs) what I what I hate about McKinley is that he's such a press like he has such it's like he's barely there. But instead of like being stern and fatherly and just sort of like laying back, instead he's like whiny and complains, but does not try to actually steer the ship.
1: Yeah, I like it. After the war, when, you know, people are, are debating what to do with the Philippines, he's like, Yeah, you know, the U.S. obviously does a- end up annexing it. McKinley's like, oh, I, I, I don't think we really want the Philippines, but, like, we don't really have any options. Like, we, we want it, and we can't give it up. It would be cowardly, so, like... I guess I have to take control over it.
0: (laughs) There's also the line where he says, we can't give it to the Filipinos because they're obviously not ready for self-rule. Yeah. (laughs) Which I, having never been there, can assess.
1: Yep. Now, McKinley gets himself assassinated in 1901. Upon his death, he was a generally popular president. Uh, Like a lot of political figures who got killed, he becomes even more popular, like, immediately after his death. But in the long run, his legacy would be massively overshadowed by his successor.
0: Yeah, I think I just want to emphasize, McKinley is it? It's fascinating how these days you can't have someone who is a B type personality become president. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like everyone who becomes president now is, and has been for the last forty years is an ambitious psychopath who has constantly imagined being president for 20 years before they step in the Oval Office and has read about it and has all these plans and is surrounded by people who have read about it and have all these plans who are themselves surrounded by it and have read about it and have all these plans. But he, McKinley is just like a... He's just a guy. He's just... And it's fascinating that we could be led as a country by a person who has seemingly no desire to lead. You know, you could argue that what he did was popular economically and then going to war, this is what other people want to do. You can say, Oh, he's delegating. But if you're gonna have a hand at the office, you might as well, I don't know, I might as well do something. Like, if if you don't, just become an anarchist. If you believe that that's how things work, just be an adult and become an anarchist. Like the guy who killed McKinley, (laughs) ironically enough.
1: Yeah, Roosevelt was literally ordering ships like around uh, as assistant secretary of the Navy without McKinley's approval. (laughs)
0: Yeah. yeah. And also basically help. It was one of the driving forces behind getting the U.S. to enter the war, which served to let him valor steal and boost his career, and you're about to talk about him.
1: So that brings us to number 26, Teddy Roosevelt.
0: So, Jay, I have a theory about Theodore Roosevelt. A lot of people have theorized how do you psychologically, without using age or any other arbitrary designation, how do you determine when a boy becomes a man? Yeah. And I would like to put forward, if they are a nerdy white boy in America, that they become a man when Theodore Roosevelt ceases to be their favorite president.
1: (laughs) It's a, it's a, it's a good though, witness test
0: learn, learn some real history and become a goddamn <laughs> adult instead of quoting cracked articles which i used to do but i was 14 at the time yeah oh he's a badass the old lion the bull moose
1: yeah you know it took five presidential deaths but we finally found the vice president who managed to really capitalize on the moment You know, Theodore Roosevelt benefited so much from McKinley's death, that it's almost hard to believe he didn't hire the assassin himself. He gets a lot of points from modern scholars for trying to use the power of the presidency to expand the executive branch, project military power, and press for more progressive legislation, even though he didn't actually get all that much of it passed.
0: Which no one remembers.
1: What's almost totally forgotten is his waging the first real forever war outside of America's borders.
0: Most of the focus for the Spanish-American War goes on Cuba, and downplays America's acquisition of the Philippines. The fact that America fought in the Philippines is mostly forgotten today, but it happens. Like in Cuba, local armies were already rebelling against the Spanish, and Americans allied with the locals, telling them that they'd be free to rule themselves once the war was over. The Americans reneged on this promise as quickly as they could and tried to take the Spaniard's place as ruler of the islands. This kicked off a four-year war that ended with American troops crushing a local government. This conflict was wrapping up just as Roosevelt was taking office, and he would quickly declare an end to combat operations in the Philippines. This was not true. Currently, like t- today, currently. There are serious historical arguments over the end of the so-called Philippine-American War. It's a subject that needs much more Western examination. Western, because Filipinos remember it. Uh, A lot of, you know, y'all could accuse us of Wikipedia-warring this podcast and just saying the most obvious things about the presidents and stuff. Uh, This is not. uh, You can check uh, Theodore Roosevelt's Wikipedia page. This stuff is barely mentioned. The long story short is that several factions of guerrilla fighters rose up to resist US occupation. These groups came from many of the archipelagos over 700 islands speaking different languages and following different leaders and over time the Americans began to bleed troops especially while trying to control the less developed southern half of the islands. Just as his soldiers were resorting to war crime tactics, Roosevelt began to get questions about why men were coming back in body bags months and years after the war was officially over. It was a serious domestic problem for the administration that has been mostly written out of history. But Roosevelt would continue to lie about the extent of U.S. activity in the Philippines, even as he prepared to use the colony as a staging ground against a potential war against Japan, which many people in Roosevelt's circle assumed was inevitable sooner rather than later. I mean, in fact, the Japanese ended up going after the Russians, but...
1: Yeah. Yeah. Now, most don't know about this, but Roosevelt first gained prominence after publishing a book on the naval history of the War of 1812. This guy was a naval nerd, and once in, he was in the federal government, he helped push Alfred Thayer Mahan's theory that America needed to become a globe-spanning naval power. Mahan, for those who don't know, he's a guy who writes a very important book. He's the book. guy.
0: Yeah. He He is the guy of American naval theory.
1: He's the guy on, like global naval theory in this time period his book like kaiser wilhelm loves his book which is why he wastes a bunch of money making a giant navy to try to beat the british and fail you know, the japanese love his book like mayhan is super influential on a lot of countries around if you go period.
0: to the american naval academy and probably a lot of other naval academies around the world you you will have to read Mayhan. He, he is yeah. the guy
1: yeah all this basically means is that from 1898 to 1916 the u.s would send troops to cuba puerto rico the philippines nicaragua panama colombia haiti honduras china the dominican republic guam mexico and probably a bunch of other places that we've forgotten Much of this was done without congressional approval or public knowledge. When the American public did know about it, it was mostly through propaganda with all the war crimes and overthrowing of democratic governments edited out. What's fascinating is how much this forgotten period resembles the war on terror. Just like the post 9-11 military developments, it's a period of history that saw dozens of illegal military actions the American public was mostly unaware of in a nebulous quest for conquest. And just like the War on Terror, a major limiting factor on Roosevelt's ambition was the American people asking questions and demanding answers. This forced him to cut down his ambitions in the Philippines to basically just securing naval bases. So, you know, I'll just keep pushing them.
0: Remember, American public, without your pressure, the feds will send a really pissed-off, weird dude from Philadelphia to overthrow a foreign government.
1: It's almost crazy to me how, like, Teddy is, like, the best president at branding. Especially, like, his legacy, which is even, like, outside, like, after his death. Whereas, like, a lot of conservatives and the liberals both love Teddy. Like... And there's so many... It's like so much of the BS like just makes its way into like basic history books. Like, you know, like I genuinely bought into like the whole like a Rough Rider, a San Juan Hill stuff. So did I. Yeah, you, know, you know, because that, that was in the middle school history textbooks. Um,
0: I mean, he was there, but he they, they fought very, very briefly <laughs> after the Cubans had done the vast majority of the work. And there's like one charge...
1: Yeah, and at San Juan Hill, even in specific, there were, like, a bunch of other American soldiers who, like, who did shit first and got forgotten because they're not Teddy Roosevelt. Um, Lines Led by Donkeys has a good episode episode series on the Spanish-American War. I would recommend that for, uh, especially for San Juan Hill. Um, Because it just, like, shows how, like, Roosevelt has this massive mythos about it and, and, like, more so than I think a lot of the other presidents with the big mythos like Washington or Lincoln or even Jefferson. I think like Roosevelt really falls apart <laughs> when you the closer you look at it.
0: Yeah, but he was the first guy to get in there since Lincoln with a fucking plan, with an agenda.
1: Yeah, that is true. That is, I'll, I'll give him credit for that. Like he he had a lot of things
0: he wanted to do, but you can question his badass status but he believed in himself and he had a psychopathic determined will uh, i mean he did get shot and then continue delivering a speech he bought into his own propaganda and his own yeah. singular uh, power at his own singular I mean, he wanted
1: to go to... fight in the world war one <laughs> like yeah like this is a guy like to his credit like who wanted to do stuff
0: and that's going to just blow through the status quo of the day which we have already set up as being completely against doing stuff it's easy to shine when everyone else refuses to put forward even a mediocre effort and like you mentioned before a lot of uh, political sides can appreciate roosevelt you know the mainstream bipartisan consensus, Overton window of American politics right now is very, you know, pro military expansion and whatnot, and so you know he did that, so he gets points there. Uh, the liberals can love him for the park service shit. The conservatives can love him for the war shit and the the military buildup and. He's often called one of the progressives and gets credit for pushing all this progressive legislation, none of which he really put into place. Um, And busted a whole lot less trust than... Number 27, William Howard Taft. Taft is a strange figure in history. He's not an unimportant president, and yet his destiny feels very out of his control. But unlike McKinley, it's not out of his control because he refuses to do anything about it. It's out of his control because he's, like, trying to do things, and and it it slips away like a greased pig. He was actually the governor of the Philippines for a while and was totally out of his depth trying to keep U.S. soldiers from a Abusing the locals, like, Taft would give speeches about how they needed to, uh, consider their uh, little brown brothers as their equals and partners, and the troops came with marching songs, uh, basically mocking his sentiments. He only becomes president because his friend, Teddy Roosevelt, asks him to run in his stead. See, Teddy knew that running for a third term would be a bad look, you know, like he was mad for power, and he thought that his old friend William would be easy to manipulate. Taft's wife Nellie also pressed him into running so she could be first lady. She unfortunately suffers a stroke a few months in and was restricted in her abilities for most of the presidency. William actually took hours out of each day for the better part of a year to care for her, which is really, really sweet. Anyway, the crux of our story is that eventually, Teddy and William had a falling out. The details are a messy cavalcade of slights and dramas, which in my opinion are mostly Teddy being a diva and trying to backseat President, his old friend. The issues they differed on were generally pretty minor and petty, like a few cabinet appointments and interpretations of Supreme Court law. Honestly, I think Teddy wanted a third term, it was just trying to stir shit like most of it is just you know teddy making an editorial about how he didn't like a decision someone under tapped and made or privately bitching to someone it's kind of from like 1910 to 1912 that there's like a this sort of undercurrent of of gossip and the the two men like not seeing each other as much and you know they hear things from the grapevine and rumor passes from one person to one person to one person it it i kind of want like all of this to be sort of retold as a drop like a modern day drama for teen girls (laughs) because it would probably work
1: yeah yeah, basically all of this is what leads to the 1912 election that saw Taft run against Roosevelt. Uh, Roosevelt was running as a third, as a new party, the progressive party, as well as against the Democrat Woodrow Wilson and socialist Eugene V. Debs. Now this was arguably the most left-wing election in American history. Yee fucking haw! Yeah. But with Taft and Roosevelt splitting the Republican vote and Wilson running on this very similar platform, and Debs running to the left of everyone, Taft never stood a chance. Wilson won the Electoral College in a landslide, but due to the four-way race, he did so with only around 42% of the popular vote. In the end, Taft only won 23% of the popular vote and carried eight votes in the Electoral College, those coming from Utah and Vermont. Now that's the poorest showing of any sitting president in American history, and it's difficult to imagine it ever being topped. Socialists got around 6% of the popular vote in that election, by
0: the way. Not bad. Eugene Dibbs ran from prison. (laughs) Indeed. Taft
1: knew he was going to lose going into the election and probably wasn't that sad to leave office. And during his presidency, his wife almost died and he got stuck in his own bathtub. That story is real. Don't let anyone tell you it isn't.
0: When we were done doing the research for this, uh, Jay, Taft's in my, like, top seven of presidents. Possibly top five. I... I mean, not that the guy didn't do some bad stuff. It's kind of impossible at the time. At all times, because the job of the presidency is to be, do crimes, because America is crime. But, like... We didn't go into it, but he busts way more trust than Roosevelt. He he pressed for legislation. He tried to restrain all of the international invasion fuckery, which uh, Woodrow Wilson would once again unleash, leading to, for example, U.S. Marines robbing the National Bank of Haiti. But... (laughs) By the way, I was listening to a podcast about, about like, two people debating. It was, like, the New York Times podcast debating uh, in, intervention in Haiti. Came to zero conclusions, but at first was like, oh, you know, the U.S. and Haiti have had a very complex relationship. You know, we, we basically absconded with uh, most of their, their foreign currency reserves. And I'm just thinking to myself, That's a very censored way to tell the story (laughs) of the U.S. Marines literally robbing a bank. Anyway, you know, know, Taft, when you look at what he was handed and what he did, I genuinely think that he did one of the best jobs out of the 45 presidents.
1: Yeah. He was one of the largest also, which which certainly counts for something.
0: Literally the largest. (laughs) Number 28, Woodrow Wilson. Of course we have to go from an underrated president to an overrated one. Like, seriously, I, I think that Woodrow Wilson is the most overrated president. Like you learn in school the guy was a progressive and a modernizer and he steered us through World War One. Oh it's so uh, oh, utter horseshit. Wilson was the most conservative candidate on the ticket in 1912. He was so racist, he resegregated parts of the federal bureaucracy that had already been desegregated. He got us into World War One, which was a complete disaster built on lies. Again, another story for another day you should hate Wilson, no matter your politics, he was a cruel, cold bitch and anything good that happened during his presidency was in spite of him rather than because of him, he thought he was better than everyone spit most of his second term crafting this international system to complete the world that immediately fucking failed screened Fucking white nationalist propaganda films in the White House. Again, the entirety of World War- I Jay. I really, I really don't like. I'm gonna give myself a stroke. I don't like this guy. Do you know where uh, he grew up? Do you know what his uh, what his real
1: hometown is? I should know because I remember reading a lot about Wilson back in the day, but I don't remember.
0: He's from Augusta, Georgia. Oh, okay. (laughs) We share a hometown.
1: So, one of your people.
0: Yeah, I'm going to have a stroke. Speaking of strokes... On October 2nd, 1919, Wilson, 61 at the time, suffered a stroke that left him partially paralyzed. For weeks, he was confined to bed, seen only by his wife and personal doctor. First Lady Edith Wilson took complete control of her husband's life. For most of October and November, not even senior cabinet members were allowed to see the president. Edith controlled everything the president read and transcribed all of his orders. We have no idea how many she may have altered or influenced, but the opportunity was massive. Like she could have completely wrote the opposite of what he said or what was meant to be said to him and every instance we have no way of knowing.
1: Now Wilson's mobility recovered to some degree after two months and while doctors described him as sound of mind, their reports said he was prone to sudden mood shifts. Reports also stated that the stroke quote enhanced all of his worst personality traits. I don't know exactly what that means but I'm going to assume that he was basically just more of a pompous asshole than normal. Wilson's health was kept secret for five months. The news of the president's disability was scandalous across the nation and weakened the Democrats before the upcoming election. Now Wilson's ability was heavily restricted for the rest of his presidency, and he was unable to discharge much of his duties. No president has ever been more away from the wheel than Wilson, and the fun thing is that nothing really happened in spite of this. Makes me really wonder if we really need these guys after all.
0: It's really ridiculous that the vice president... I I think maybe that... I don't think the 25th Amendment was in place at the time. But there wasn't even tons of huge discussions on the vice president stepping in. Which he totally should have. Because Woodrow Wilson just could not execute the actions of the office. Some people have, you know, even jokingly called... Uh, edith wilson the first uh, female american president for how much control and you know people will exaggerate things and whatnot some people will say oh that's why we got the women's right to vote that happened like six months before wilson's stroke you fucking idiots <laughs> he says speaking to a cracked article that he read 13 years ago <laughs> all right you All all right for the zoomers in the audience In, like, 2011-2010, if you wanted to make content about history on America, you just, like, opened Wikipedia and just found random facts that were funny and involved, like, death or boobs or drugs or crime, and you just slapped 400 words on it, regurgitating, added some fun puns and jokes, And you combine, like, seven of those into a listicle. And this was groundbreaking and revolutionary at the time. And actually was one of the best intellectual currents on the internet as far as, like, stuff it influenced. Like, there's a reason most of the crack diaspora are still doing, like, really cool, healthy, not far-right bullshit things these days but speaking as a content creator in the year of our lord 2022 about to be 2023 when i reflect on the things that made me laugh in middle school the bar was low jay don't tell me you did you didn't spend a significant piece of sixth grade reading cracked articles
1: oh for sure yeah, it it's cracked. Is was inform, was formative for me, and I think formative for a lot of people, like you know, like us. And they also did very much fall into like the bro history side of things, like where you know if somebody was cool enough or whatever, then like they would kind of fall for fall for them. Like again, like Theodore Roosevelt to to go back a little bit. You know, the guy you know rode moose and like shot animals and was a badass so like obviously he was great and like Cracked would fall for that but still you know I I have fond memories of you know Cracked when it was at its peak
0: I mean it was great and arguably started my interest in literary analysis I mean you watch the old after hour sketches and that's like a huge basis of the way I see media, like even if it was bad, like it. The first time people were like, "Yo, what if we were like critical about things and and were fun and like we we sort of tried to bring up the oddball slices of history and we let people just like write shit and then Facebook did the pivot to video and destroyed a solid fifty percent of the worthwhile internet.
1: Number 29, Warren G. Harding. Warren Harding came to office in 1921 after campaigning on a promise to return to normalcy. While in theory this meant returning the country to its pre-World War I state, in practice it basically just meant rolling the clock back on the roll of the presidency. There would be none of the bold initiatives of the Wilson or Roosevelt years. This was a return to the Gilded Age style of doing as little as possible apart from messing with organized waiver.
0: One of the things you should definitely do after this, if you're piqued about American history, is listen to Chris Wade and uh, Matt Chrisman's, really unfortunate they have those names, uh, series hell of presidents, if you want a better grasp on the presidency. And One of the things they, they point out is that, like, Roosevelt, Taft, Wilson are all Ivy League grads, And Warren's, like, from the state university of wherever he went.
1: Yeah, like, there, the the stereotype around Harding, especially, like, after, you know, his time in office, was that, like, he was basically just, like, a handsome guy who, who, like, the people around him just, like, shoved into politics and used. Like, almost like a George W. Bush thing. Um, How true this is is debatable, but... He was not a big thinker. There is like a funny thing where there's an argument over tax policy and he basically just says like, oh, one, I'll hear from one side and they seem right. And I'll hear from another side and they seem right. I don't know what to do. <laughs> Perhaps because of that, Harding really just didn't do much of This president, He passed some tax cuts and failed to mediate a resolution to a very large railroad strike in 1922 prompting his attorney general and a district court judge to basically take things in their own hands and break up the strikes.
0: Harding also did some hardcore adultery throughout his life, most notably engaging in an extramarital affair while he was a senator that led to Mistress Carrie Fulton Phillips successfully blackmailing the Republican Party. His affair was only made public knowledge in the 60s. Finding out the bad stuff after his presidency would essentially be the theme of Harding's legacy. He served for two years before dying in 1923 of a heart attack. Just a few months before his death, hearings would begin on what would become the defining political scandal of the 1920s, the Teapot Dome. In 1921, Harding issued an executive order transferring control over petroleum reserves near the Teapot Dome Rock Formation in Wyoming from the Department of Navy to the Department of the Interior. In 1922, Harding's Secretary of the Interior, Albert B. Fall, sold the rights to those reserves to a set of oil companies for a very low cost without a competitive bidding process in exchange for around $400,000 in bribes. This is essentially just one big lump sum version of the whiskey ring scandal we talked about before, just kind of like in reverse instead of like not enforcing the tax, just like letting people pay less. Albert B. Fall was part of the so-called Ohio Gang. A group of close associates of the president who had been with him since his days in Ohio state politics.
1: The investigation into the Teapot Dome affair would take years, with Albert Fall eventually being convicted in 1929 and becoming the first member of cabinet to be imprisoned. Damn. While there is no direct proof that Harding was aware of Fall's actions, the scandal caused opinions on the late president to plummet. Today, Harding is commonly considered as one of the worst presidents in US history by basically everyone, save for some very weird libertarians. Back when I was in high school, like, you know, I kind of like, I had friends who were libertarians. I like watched some like the libertarian stuff and whatever. Like the people are really into Hayek and you know, all that Austrian economics. They really like Harding. (laughs) Like Harding's like a libertarian hero. Would you think they would go more for the next guy in our list? But I guess the next guy is too boring to even be a hero, but yeah.
0: I don't think I've ever told this story, but since we're talking about libertarians, this guy is fundamentally cool. I haven't talked to him in like, uh, I haven't seen him since COVID happened. But I used to talk to him at my work. Obviously that kind of ended when COVID became a thing. Uh, Total autist, uh, army dude. Cool guy, like 10 years old, and we would chat about stuff, chat about having the condition. But he was, like, strict libertarian, and I remember we would argue about Puerto Rico freaking statehood. And, and his position was just that, that Puerto Rico should cease to become a part of... Uh, uh, to, would to just cease to be part of the United States. And I'm, like, trying to convince him that that's unjust and insane... It was a good time. Number 30. Yeah. Calvin Coolidge. Number 31. Herbert Hoover. <laughs> That's a Herbert Hoover. All right, all right, all right. Uh, Yeah, so like... Calvin Coolidge, there's nothing to talk about. He, like, vetoed a farm subsidy in office most notable thing he said while president was I do not choose to run for president in 1928 there there's just nothing to talk about instead like you know shall we discuss the meta for the last 10 guys obviously some of them have wanted to uh, drive the car of state others like Calvin Coolidge have not but then because of the inaction of people like Calvin Coolidge the Great Depression would occur. Yeah. And what's fascinating for to me is that this is the real, like, turning point. Because a Calvin Coolidge cannot exist as president today. Coolidge was a guy who sa- thought it was you know nice to be president, but then it kind of became boring and uh, uh, you know, too... Taxing and he was like, All right, I'm gonna leave because the office like just wasn't powerful enough to massively shape things unless there was like a huge political movement going on at the time or we were entering war. And now that cannot be the case, now the president is important, and in many ways, the presidency is only important because of how unimportant. The, these guys were because that lack of the United States being a real fucking nation state and just like letting there be like rebel mini nations within their borders, letting wars be started on a whim, letting massive economic recessions happen with almost zero attempt to stop them besides raising and lowering some tariffs, which is completely ineffectual compared to modern economic controls.
1: Yeah. It's, you know, we, we talked about the gilded age and the gilded age presidents by now. We're well after the gilded age, but a lot of them, especially. Yeah. But like, You know, Harding, Coolidge, and to an extent Hoover, and that's a little bit debatable, we can get into that, fit into the Gilded Age mold. And if we see Coolidge as the last of this era of presidents, then, like, certainly went out with the opposite of a bang, because Coolidge is, like, the absolute most, like, do-nothing president.
0: The other thing I know about him is that a lady once said, my friend bet me that I couldn't get more than two words out of you, and Coolidge replied, "You lose."
1: <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's kind of funny. If you go on the White House website, they have a write-up on every president, and obviously, like these are generally kind of like done in a way to make the president look good, because you know this is the White House website. But uh, I was still, like, I was still going on these during the research just to see, like, what kind of, like, the spin on each president is. Even with Coolidge, like, they don't spin much. This is, like, yeah, he didn't really do much. And, and, and they even mentioned that, like, before his death, he basically just said, quote, I feel I no longer fit in with these times. And that really, I think, is a good summary of Coolidge. He's somebody who, who's just a, a product of a bygone era. He's also apparently the only president in history to have ran for office in federal, state, and municipal levels and never lose a single election. So maybe just not saying anything is a really good strategy. I don't
0: know. (laughs) You may not like it, but this is what peak efficiency looks like. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 31. Herbert Hoover.
1: So Hoover is the third president in this line of Republicans that began back with his fellow Ohioan, Warren Harding, back in 21. Now, throughout the 1920s, these Republican administrations basically just sat back and reaped the economic benefits of the roaring 20s. This rapid economic growth was built on shaky foundations, however, and when the whole thing came crashing down in 1929, the guy left holding the bag was Hoover.
0: Someone always gotta hold the bag.
1: Yeah. The economic crash of 1929 was brought about by a myriad of causes, most of which were not Hoover's fault. His natural inclination at the start of the depression was to avoid direct federal government intervention in favor of encouraging charitable actions by civilians, local governments, and businesses. He fundamentally did not believe his administration should or could right the economy.
0: One of the things I love about Hoover is that you can argue that he's way more qualified than the guys who came before him. He was oh, yeah. <laughs> in the private sector for a huge time doing literal supply chain management. He's been all over the world. He, he Did you know that Hoover took part in the Boxer Rebellion? Yeah. <laughs> a- fucking motherfucking. fucking... Smedley Butler had to drag his ass out of a a firing line while he's just screaming during a firefight, being completely useless. Should not have been there. So the guy was one of the politicians with the most economic experience in the country, maybe even in the world. And he can't do shit because of his beliefs and what everyone's, more or less, beliefs were. I mean, Keynesianism was not even fully invented yet. Yeah. (laughs) In the end, Hoover would take some more direct action in attempt to deal with the Depression. However, most of the positive actions he undertook, such as the creation of the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, were offset by the poor monetary and fiscal policies of his government. Economics in the thirties was even more of a pseudoscience than it is today, and the bag of tricks that Hoover relied on, including the classic Republican high tariffs and staunch devotion to gold standard, only worsened the depression by contracting money supply, leading to excessive deflation and fervor bank collapse. Like this is a depression where no one has a job because no one can hire you because no one's making any money, and they're like, yeah, we're gonna keep it on the gold standard so we can't lend out more shit. And then their fucking tariff crashes the economy of Europe, which means that European banks can't lend anything. And it's just a huge deflationary spiral. Deflation basically means that poor people get more poor.
1: And if you're in debt, which a lot of people were in debt because the Roaring Twenties was heavily fueled by borrowing uh, you're pretty much screwed because it's very hard to pay back that debt.
0: Hoover was rightfully blamed for all this by the general public. They thought the economy is shit, must be the president's fault. And in this case, they weren't entirely wrong. Again, you can say that Hoover was the guy left holding the bag, but... If you sort of melt away Hoover as Hoover, and you see him as the entirety of the ruling class in this period, he was to blame. No one else would have acted differently. No one else that could have gotten in there, that the Republicans would have put as president, would have done anything different. And of course, he would be handily defeated in 32, and spend most of the later 30s arguing against the policies of the next guy on our list. God, I love... This is one of the fun things with this episode, is we get to see douchebags eat shit.
1: <laughs> you know, he did, he did get to invent the vacuum cleaner, so he's got that going for him. Yeah, number 32, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt.
0: FDR is, like, the most complicated president. Like, he's, the, he was in there the longest, he's got the most to talk about, he, he's one of, you know, the two great leaders who met the moment and what's fun about him is once you get past the obvious thing of you know getting us through world war ii negotiating with the soviets pulling hauling the country through the through the great depression there's a lot of like weird uh like, the early years of FDR's administration, there there is some, um, some sort of weird, fu- three stooges-ass shit. It's shenanigans, shall we say. Yeah. Just because there's so much that goes down, and the fact that FDR was the first guy since Wilson, arguably ever, that had any will to, like, actually fiddle with shit.
1: It's... Kind of hard to like find really queer incompetencies when it comes to FDR. He had his flaws, of course. His internment of Japanese Americans remains an infamous mark on his time in office. He refrained from supporting anti-lynching legislation in order to not alienate white Southerners, and and you know he also did a lot of mass surveillance on political opponents. But one can certainly say that FDR was good at getting things done if he wanted. Some legislation passed, it generally did pass. Like, again, this is a guy who wins four presidential elections. He's a good politician. But there is one notable exception, and that is his handling of the Supreme Court.
0: When FDR took office, he found a Supreme Court that was hostile to many of his New Deal initiatives. I mean, this makes sense. Like, he's doing stuff that's never been done before, and they're all from the previous administrations. Both political differences and a bill that cut the pensions for court justices passed by Hoover meant that few were willing to retire. FDR thus decided on a simple solution. Expand the Supreme Court. Which is totally constitutionally legal, by the way. The Judicial Procedures Reform Bill of 1937 would have given the president the ability to appoint a new justice for every justice who had reached the age of 70 and refused to retire, up to a maximum of six. The Constitution does not define the size of the Supreme Court, and the system of nine justices had only existed since 1869, so there was no real constitutional argument against the plan. For FDR's rivals, however, this plan to pack the Supreme Court was a sign of the President's tyrannical nature. The plan was bitterly opposed, even by many Democrats, leading to its ultimate demise in Congress. There's a long-standing historical myth that FDR relented, in part because the court, led by Chief Justice Hughes, upheld a minimum wage law supported by FDR in West Coast Hotel Company v. Parrish. According to this version of the story, the court relented to the presidential pressure, and FDR relented on his plans, leading to the phrase the switch in time that saved nine. However, there's little evidence for this. Indeed, it seemed that Hughes had made up his mind prior to FDR ever talking about packing the court.
1: Yeah. In any case, FDR's plans failed, exposing perhaps not only the limits of his own power, but the degree to which the Supreme Court had managed to impress its own power and sense of historical continuity on the American political landscape the ramifications of which are felt to this day. FDR, of course, would die in office in April 1945, paving the way for his vice president to take office.
0: Yeah, this is generally seen as a black mark on FDR's moral record, the thing that he was trying to do that was wrong. But no, this was his failure and his fuck-up. He totally should have done this. Was it a power grab? Yes. Was it anti-democratic? No, but like it had the potential to be so it's weird, but like the fact that the Supreme Court like we had the opportunity to neutralize them and make them a more democratically responsive and less geriatric dominated organization and we didn't is directly why all of the horseshit that came out of that court for the blast 30 years has gone down. Yeah. And by like
1: impress itself upon the political landscape, what I really mean is that like the court's weird and that like, unlike the presidency and Congress, its powers aren't clearly defined by Congress, by the constitution. It gave itself powers. And like,
0: they, they just took it. (laughs) You can, you, you gaslight gatekeep (laughs) girl boss. The Supreme court just literally made itself the most powerful institution in America. And there's nothing stopping us from throwing them all down a flight of stairs. Like the, the president literally just can choose to not enforce their will. It has happened before documented. Yeah. But like the whole idea that like, Oh, there are nine
1: justices again, that only happens in 1869 for early American history you know the founding fathers did not say that there were going to be nine justices that's not a part of the constitution yet like they they managed to convince us that like yeah this is how it is and this is how it's always been to where any sort of change is seen as like you know like you're the reincarnation of Emperor Nero or something like it's pretty wild
0: and he couldn't get it done thanks for nothing frank hope you're getting good hand jobs from your cousin in hell (laughs) you know what eleanor roosevelt's name was before you know as eleanor roosevelt's maiden name was no roosevelt (laughs) it was highly convenient by the way i was talking about a different cousin uh, they were, like, fifth cousins. It was... F- it's <laughs> fine. It is fine. It's... it's I mean, genetically. Uh, yeah. Morally, uh, I, I don't know. My understanding of the math is that, like, after you get past second, you're basically in the clear.
1: There was yeah, this weird. I
0: think that's how it works. There is this weird moment in a, like, British literature after 1600 class I had in college, where we were talking about Wuthering Heights, one of the many British novels about cousin fucking, and just started talking about the, you know, what was socially acceptable then and what's socially acceptable now, and we started, like, looking up when uh, marrying your first cousin was banned in various states. By the way, I think it's around the 1910s, by the way, is, like, kind of when that swept America. And they just start, the, the class just started talking about like the merits and, and and like ethics of incest. And I'm at certain point, we get so far away from the text of the book we were supposed to be talking about. I'm just kind of looking around like, why are we talking about, why are we going this deep on incest? And the, the teachers, like the 62 year old lady who was really cool was like, no, 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 keep going. This is good discussion. This is what college is all about. You're supposed to discuss big ideas. And I'm like, ah, oh, the liberal arts, truly the seedbed of brainworms in America.
1: I mean, yeah, <laughs> I know. I, I don't remember having any intense uh, incest discourse in, in my college days,
0: but. I mean, you made up for it on Discord.
1: Yeah, certainly, and Twitter.